Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. If you have a question, you can write the word question down and then write out your question, re-read it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and add the references to it. We have the ability to pull up the references, get them up on the screen, and to take a look at them. Uh, I just got back from Israel. I had a few weeks off. We had a Q&A last Wednesday. Uh, these Q&As are a supplement to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of Tucson. So if you have any questions about our weekend study, which was on the resurrection of Christ, uh, specifically the the truth of the resurrection and the evidence for the resurrection, uh, then we can talk about that some today. Uh, but if you have any questions at all on apologetics, on passages of Scripture, difficult passages, um, whatever it may be, uh, then go ahead and submit that by writing question in front of it and then picking it up from there. Our first question today comes from a question that was asked to me a while back about what I call Pharaoh's heart problem. And that is, did God choose to harden Pharaoh's heart? And the reality is that yes, God did harden Pharaoh's heart. But not only did God harden Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh is an example of a kind of person that God will harden their heart. So it's more important than just, is God fair? If God hardened Pharaoh's heart and then judged Pharaoh because of it, uh, would that have been fair? I want to show you that God was completely fair in what he was doing. In fact, the Bible says God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. And it says that not once but it says it twice. And uh, one of them as to why God's waiting for his return. Uh, also, uh, if you if you have any questions about Israel as well, there's some things going on over there. If you have any questions about Israel, uh, you could kind of th- just throw that in here. You can ask those questions about Israel as well. I've got some things I'd like to talk about that, but we let you go ahead and drive the direction of this. Um, but as I said, uh, God does harden Pharaoh's heart. Uh, God does it with a reason in mind, and oftentimes it is misconstrued. And I want to start with the passage out of Romans and show this to you, uh, because here we see God saying in Romans 9, 14 through 18, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scriptures say to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all of the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he has mercy, and whom he wills, or he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills, he hardens. So the question now is, who does God will to harden? A lot would like you to think that God just randomly chooses people. And I realize that Calvinism doesn't like the word randomly. So you try to use the word unilaterally. But when you listen to what they teach, they believe that God, not for any purposes of merit, there's nothing about the individual, but God chooses one person to show mercy and he chooses another person to harden. But that's not what is happening. It's not what's happening here in Romans chapter 9, and it's not what happens to 
to Pharaoh either. So what I've got here is the verses that talk about Pharaoh hardening his heart in the order that they come up with in scripture. And it's going to be able to give us some information. So here we see that God makes a statement. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and on whom he wills, he hardens. We want to return to that at the end of answering this question. Who does God will to have mercy for and who does he will to harden their heart? So the first one that we see is in Exodus 4, 21. This is God at the burning bush and the Lord says, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So God's the first one to ever bring up Pharaoh hardening his heart. But all of us can agree that God knows the future. In Isaiah, God said, I am God, there is none like me. I am God and there is no other who knows the beginning from the end. God knows everything. Whom God determined he has predestined, or who God has foreknown, he has predestined, it says in Romans chapter 8. So God foreknows, and because God foreknew that I would choose him, he chose me from the fourth, before the foundations of the world that I would become an inheritor of Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 1. And so whom God foreknows. Now, again, a lot of Calvinists will say, well, God doesn't use his foreknowledge. Why, why wouldn't he use his foreknowledge? Why would God put away his foreknowledge? And then they say, well, that means there's some merit in you because you would choose and someone else wouldn't choose. No, receiving a gift is not merit. Saying, I want to know Christ, uh, seeking God or wanting to know him is not a merit in itself. It doesn't make you better. If you are chosen by God indiscriminately and then God gives you the ability to be able to believe, then you're a better person than the person that God has, has not chosen. But when it comes to receiving the free gift that's offered to everyone, the person who receives it does nothing but receive the free gift. And if God's decided those who receive can be saved and those who don't receive can't be saved. So God foreknew that Pharaoh would harden his heart. And so God would then firm up his decision by hardening the heart of Pharaoh. So we go to the next place that we find it and it's still before the, the plagues have even started. He's getting Moses ready with the children of Israel. And he says to them in Exodus 7, 3, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. So again, it's a promise to harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, there's a few words for harden that are being used here. One means a process that, that something is hardened, to, and, and the other one means to strengthen or to help someone become you know, to strengthen, to strengthen, they're already hard, but God strengthens them even being harder. And so in, in the very next time it's, we're told about Pharaoh's heart being hardened, it says, then the magicians of Egypt, this is Exodus 7.22, then the magicians of Egypt did so when they, uh, with their enchantments and Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. So now God has told Moses in chapter four, I'm gonna harden Pharaoh's heart. Earlier in chapter seven, I'm gonna harden Pharaoh's heart. But now we see the first time it happens, it becomes hard. That God is not said to have hardened his heart here. To read that into the text would be to do damage to the text. You would be saying, well, it said God would harden Pharaoh's heart, so Pharaoh's heart's hardened here, but it doesn't say that. Later on, it will say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We see here that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. 
and that God, I believe, will respond to you. If you harden your heart, then God will firm up that decision. If you soften your heart, then God will soften that decision. So, what's the next thing that happened? This is in Exodus 8.15. We're going over the passages that have to do with Pharaoh's heart being hardened. It says in Exodus 5.18, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. So, the progression so far has been God saying that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, then Pharaoh's heart becoming hard, and now Pharaoh hardening his own heart. So, the first thing that we see before God, it ever says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart is that he hardened his own heart. God said he was going to, but as far as the progression of when it happened, Pharaoh hardened his heart before God did it. Then we get to Exodus 8, 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. So, now we have Pharaoh's heart becoming hard, him hardening it, and now it growing hard. Which this may indeed be God because it says, as the Lord had said, and God said, I would harden his heart. So, this could be a reference. If you're going to say that in Romans 8, 9, in uh, um, Exodus 8, 19, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, you wouldn't be doing damage to the text because at the end it says, just as the Lord has said, although it doesn't particularly say that yet. Now, in Exodus 8, 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. At this time, also, neither would he let the people go. So, we don't have anything specifically yet said that God has hardened his heart, but we've seen that Pharaoh has hardened his heart twice, and at least twice his heart has become hard. Now, in Exodus 9, 7, we have another account. Then Pharaoh sent, and indeed, not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. Now, his heart becomes hard again. Two times Pharaoh has hardened it, three times it's become hard, and now, finally, in Exodus 9, 12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord spoke to Moses. So, again, there's a reference to Moses. So, it seems that in the middle, you could have God hardening his heart because it says, just as he said to Moses, and then in 9, 12, God hardens his heart. Now, why did God harden the heart of Pharaoh? when you look at it laid out, because Pharaoh had determined that he would harden his own heart. And when he hardened his own heart, then God hardened his heart, like people today who have an opportunity to give their lives to Christ to begin to live for him. But they harden their heart against him. I've seen people begin to move towards God, but then they determine they're not going to follow him. And it seems that their hearts become hard, and perhaps God even makes their hearts harder. I think the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit could be a type of God hardening the heart. Because the person has all this information, and yet they reject, and so God makes it so they can't believe. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Their heart has become so hard, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Now, let's go back to where we started. We started in Romans 9, where God was using Pharaoh as an example of those who he wills to soften, he does, and those who he wills to harden, he does. And Pharaoh is an example of those who he wills to harden. Now, in Romans chapter 9, this is also the passage that says, Esau I have hated and Jacob I have loved. And remember, when you go back to the Old Testament passage, the word for hated there means, means enemy. 
Esau has become an enemy, but Jacob I have loved. And when it says in the Old Testament, God hates all those who work iniquity, it's the word enemy. We've had a long, we have had two conversations about God hating people in the Old Testament and loving people in the New. And he just doesn't hate them. God does indeed love the sinner and hate the sin. But you can become an enemy of God by doing wickedness. And so when we come to the end of Romans 9, to the conclusion, who are the people who are chosen and who are the people who are not? Who are the people who are softened? Who are the people who are hardened? Who are the people who are formed as vessels of honor and as vessels of dishonor? That's all Romans 9. Listen to what it says. What shall we say then? This is the conclusion. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? So he said that the Gentiles by faith have attained righteousness when Israel by the law has not. The vessels of dishonor are Israel pursuing God by the law and the vessels of honor are the Gentiles pursuing God by faith. It's not that, that they can't, it's just at this point they're blinded and they won't. It goes on to say then, because they did not seek it by faith. Faith is the key issue. If you have faith, if you trust in God, then your heart will be softened and not hardened. If you have faith, then you will be a vessel of honor and not of dishonor. If you uh, have faith, then you will be a descendant of Jacob and not a descendant of Esau. That's the point that's being made in Romans chapter 9. It goes on to say, because they did not seek it by faith, but as by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Doesn't matter, Jew, Gentile, anyone, male, female, slave, free, the Bible said, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will not be put to shame. Here, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So yes, God did harden Pharaoh's heart. He knew through his foreknowledge that Pharaoh would harden his heart. And then God, Pharaoh, uh, then God hardened his heart and his plan came about in his, through his foreknowledge of bringing the plagues upon Egypt and all of the things um, that God was planning to do uh, there from the very beginning. So again, I want to welcome you. If you're joining us for the very first time, uh, this is a Q&A where we take questions through the comment sections. If you have a question, you can write the word question and then write out your question and, uh, and then add your references to it, but reread it, make sure that it makes sense because sometimes I'll kind of read the questions and can't figure it out and I pass on it. Um, we just take one person, one question per person as well. Uh, if we run out of questions by the end of the hour, then we'll come back and look for questions we haven't answered. So if you wanna go ahead and submit too, you can, um, but we won't necessarily get to it, all right? So um, we're gonna go ahead and take a look at the questions that we have. Good to see you guys here. Uh, we have, um, this is being streamed on YouTube and on Facebook. And we have a question right out of the shoot from Jeffrey. This may be the first time that Jeffrey's been with us. We want to welcome you, Jeffrey, if it is, if that indeed is the case. Let me switch over to this. Let me switch over to this. And then I'm going to bring Jeffrey's question in. A little, little bit cleaner. All right. So, Acts 5. Did God kill Ananias and Sapphira? And did they, or did he maybe have a heart attack from being caught in their deceitful fullness? Um, I wish we had the exact, 
Let me look over here and see if I can find uh, the exact reference to that. Um, so Ananias and Sapphira, they're part of the commune. Barnabas has given a, a large sum of money to the commune. They're distributing it to people as they need it. Ananias and Sapphira conspire together to sell some property, to give a part of it to the commune, but keep part of it for themselves, but say that they gave all of it to God. So they are lying. They are trying to look good. They're trying to look like Barnabas um, in, in what they're doing. So let me just go ahead and get my Bible pulled up here. And let me go to Acts 5 and see if I can find. Whew, I made these larger. Um, let's just start at the very beginning and see what we've got here. So prologue, the Holy Spirit promised. What am I writing? I'm Acts 1. I want to go to Acts 5. Sorry. Acts 5. All right. We'll start at the beginning again. Aligned to the Holy Spirit. Well, let's just go ahead and read a little bit of this, Jeffrey, and um, we'll see if we can get to your question. Did they have a heart attack or did God kill them? Um, I'm really glad that there's no law that says if you lie to the Holy Spirit, you'll be killed because people have lied to the Holy Spirit. But here you have the church very early on and kind of like, remember right after the law was given, there was a guy that collected sticks for firewood on the Sabbath day and they, and they killed him because he was an example and very early on how serious God was about the Sabbath day. Well, Ananias and Sapphira, I believe, are an example of how serious God is about us being honest before him. And they have the unfortunate position of being... Uh, examples to us, and God also taking them home. This is God this, this is God disciplining them and taking them home. So, it says, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, um, sold a possession and kept back part of the proceeds. His wife also being aware of it um, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, they brought a certain part of it. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and keep back part of the piece of the land for yourself. While it was, and it's not just keeping it back, that's the problem. He explains this, while it remained, was it not your own? You could have kept it. And after you sold it, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived these things in your heart? So he could have said, I'm bringing part of it. We sold the land, we're bringing part of it. But they wanted to get the, the same kind of treatment that Barnabas had gotten in the previous chapter. Then he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. And here's one of the verses where it says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've not lied to men, but to God. And by lying to the Holy Spirit, you are lying to God. And so here we get the idea of the Trinity, God one in essence, three in persons. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, but all three of them are God, all three of them are one. And here we have that one of the defenses for the Holy Spirit being God. Then Ananias, hearing these, fell down and breathed his last. Now, doesn't say God killed him, just says that he fell down and breathed his last. So if great fear came on all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. They buried on the same day. Now, it was also, remember, there would have been a tomb that his wife could have gone and visited him, okay? Now, it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such. She said, yes, for such and such. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. 
then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Now, did God kill them by heart attacks? And was your question? Maybe, but it wasn't a natural heart attack. Uh, Peter foretold that she was going to die because they had conspired that it was this certain amount. And uh, she fell down and breathed and the young men came and they found her dead and carried her out and buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all of the church, I imagine, and upon all who heard these things. And, um, all right, yeah, we'll, we'll just end it there. Um, there's some more stuff that's great from, uh, in this text as we continue to go on. But let's just come back and consider what we've seen here, Jeffrey. And that is that they become an example of the seriousness of lying to God, of having a right relationship with God, of keeping things right between you and God. In our flesh, the Bible says our hearts are desperately wicked, and I'm persuaded we don't have any idea how holy God is, how righteous he is, and how important it is for us to get hypocrisy out of our lives. Remember, Jesus kept the strongest words towards hypocrites. And these guys were hypocrites. We sold this land um, when they were lying about it. They hadn't really sold, they hadn't sold their land, but they were giving less than what they were saying they were giving, and they weren't being honest. And that was the problem uh, that arose. And, and the Bible says that in God, there's no shifting of shadows. And the heart of man is desperately wicked. So there's a huge gulf between us and God. And Jesus bridged that gulf, but we have to keep things in a right relationship with him. And the Bible says in John 1, 9, that if you will confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So we can make things right, but we don't want to live and pretend because they thought they could get away with it. They weren't thinking of the Holy Spirit scene at all. You may be able to fool men. You may be able to look like you're spiritual, but the Holy Spirit sees everything and knows everything uh, that is done. All right. So thank you very much, uh, Jeffrey, and welcome. We appreciate that. We have a question from Psychman. Psychman, good to see you. I imagine you're still abroad, but it's good to see you here. Um, what did Jesus? Um, what did Jesus do in hell? Is there more on him ascending? with the faithful Old Testament guys than Ephesians 4.8. Do you get why I think Psalms 37.4 would have been a good warning to Pharaoh? Thanks, dude. Um, uh, thanks, Segman. Um, let me take a look at, um, so, before I answer your question, let me, let me go ahead and get, sorry, I got um, Jeffrey still up there on the screen. Let me go ahead and bring your question down here, Segman. Um and the first thing I want to do is go to Psalms 37.4. And we'll take a look at that. Man, I increased my font size and woo! Uh, it's much bigger. Psalm font, I'm sure I'll just get used to it. 37 verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways unto the Lord and trust in him. Um, so delight your sword. Uh, do you get why? Uh, uh, Psalms 37.4. Would have been a good warning for Pharaoh. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know that Pharaoh was going to delight himself in the God of the Hebrews unless something had happened, uh, and 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 we don't know that. Um, but let's go back to your, your initial question. Why did Jesus um, do in hell? Do we have more than um, Ephesians four eight? So let's go to Ephesians four eight and we'll look at it from there. And yeah. Uh, Jesus did descend 
and then he ascended. So Ephesians 4, 8. Okay, I mean, let's come back just a little bit here. And we'll go ahead and bring it up on the screen. All right, here we go. So we're asking the question, what did Jesus do in hell? And is there any more in the scriptures about him descending and ascending? So this is verse 7 of Acts, Ephesians chapter 4. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he first descended into the lower part of the earth. He who descends is also one who ascends far above all of the heavens that he might fulfill all things. Okay, so this descending of Jesus, here's what we believe was going on. And thank you, Psych Man, for your question. Here's what we believe it was going on. Um, so Jesus told a parable, and we believe that it was was not a parable because we have a name of a guy that's in there, but not just a parable, but an actual account of a rich man and a poor man that died and went to, to the grave in the same day. One of them was in torment. The other one was being comforted by Abraham. And the one in torment cried across the gulf that he could get Lazarus to dip his fingers in the water and bring him a drink. And he said, we can't go back and forth. And he said, we'll send someone to my brothers and tell them so they don't come to this place. And he says, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, then they won't believe someone rises from the dead, which of course Jesus does. So there's no way to get a message back from the grave, the place of torment to those who are here now. So when Jesus, so you have this place called the grave, some are in torment, some are being comforted. There's a great gulf between the two. And so Jesus descends, and, and now because he has died on the cross, it's no longer credit. The Bible tells us uh, that Abraham was accredited righteousness, believed God, and was accredited righteousness. So everyone in the Old Testament was saved by the credit of what Jesus would do. God knew what he would do, so he kept him in the place of comfort. Jesus then descends and ascends back out with their souls and brings them into the presence of God. That's the descending and the ascending. Those that are were in torment are still waiting for the resurrection day when they will stand before God. But for now, those that have been were on the comfort side have been brought up into the presence of God. And um now, what else did Jesus do when he was there? We know that he preached to the spirits who were in prison. And there's a, there's a word for hell called, that's in, in Greek is Tartarus, that speaks of these spirits uh, who didn't keep their former, uh, didn't keep their, their proper domain during the days of Noah. And um, we could go to those passages and we can look at them. Actually, I can't find them there. Uh, let's just see if I can find, look at this really quick. I think I can. Um, all right, here we go. So this is 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20. I'm going to put this up on the screen for you here. It says, um, <clears throat> by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison for, who were formerly disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. 
1 Peter 19 and through 20. So Jesus never suffered in hell. He was victorious and led them out of into the presence of God. He also preached to the spirits that were in hell. And what, what he said to them or why he preached to them, we can speculate, but we don't know those things for sure. All right. Uh, thanks, psych man. I appreciate that. <clears throat> and yeah, had Pharaoh, Pharaoh delighted himself in the Lord, which is a, which is a passage to live by, right? Um, Isaiah 37, 4 is a passage to live by. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Man, if that's what you, if that was your life verse, if that's how you lived, then you would have God doing all kinds of things in your life if you lived uh, that particular one. All right, so thank you. Uh, Psych Man, and good to see you. I think last week you were in, last Wednesday you were in Spain, maybe? Somewhere in the world? But it's good to see you. And um, we have a question from G, uh, JDH. Uh, JDH, and this is a follow-up. So JDH says, um, follow-up, my friend died last week, and I'm sorry to hear that, JDH. She was not coherent at the end due to the medication that was administered minister to. She was not saved. I wonder what happened to people who believe but aren't saved. Um, well, there is, let me go ahead and get this into, let me do this and then I'll bring you in JDH, um, JDH. First of all, I'm sorry for the loss of your friend, especially who didn't believe. So the Bible says that those who believe will be saved. That God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so I take it that you're saying that she believed, but wasn't saved. And I'll tell you that I have hope for a person like this. And I'll, and I'll tell you my own, uh, my own personal story here in just a moment. But I'm going to tell you why I have hope for a person like this. Because we don't know what goes on inside of someone's heart, life, mind when they're dying. We know that dying is a unique experience. Thank you, JDH, for your question. Um, we know that um, dying is a unique experience. And that people know when they're dying. It's, it's different than just being sick. It's different than just being weak. And there have been a lot of studies that have been done on people as they approach death. And maybe this is God's way of giving us a chance, even on the deathbed or a cross experience, right? Where the, the thief on the cross said, remember me when you enter into paradise. And perhaps your friend, who before she became completely incoherent or maybe coming in and out of it, uh, made things right with God. We, we just don't know. There is hope. God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. And I've got to think if someone believes in God that they will call out to him. Now, I share often, um, uh, JDH, I share often how I got saved. I was 14 years old. I was asked if I was going to heaven. I said, yes. They said, why? I said, because I believed in God. But that was demonic faith. I believed in God, but I hadn't trusted in him. And so he prayed a prayer with me that I would put my trust in Christ and begin to live for him. And God transformed me and changed me and began to do a work inside of my life. That was my salvation experience in a nutshell, really quickly. My father died a few months before that. And he died of Lou Gehrig's disease. My father had taken me to the Methodist church that we were in. I was baptized in it. 
And he believed that God existed just as I did. But I never knew of any evidence of my father believing in a saving faith or even understanding that you have to believe in order to be saved. But I remember my dad, my dad was 6'1", uh, 220 pounds when he got sick. He was 98 pounds and in a wheelchair when he died. While he was going through his deterioration process, I remember walking by his room. He was laying on his bed, just staring up at the ceiling. Now I'm at this time still 13 years old. I haven't turned 14 yet. Still 13 years old. And I'm, I think about that now and I look back and I think, what was my dad thinking about as he laid there on that bed and stared up at the ceiling? What was he going through? What was going on in his life, in his heart, in his mind? And I don't know the answer to that, but I do have hope that my father was making things right with God. That he was saying, I want to be with you. Forgive me of my sins. If you're in the Methodist or the Lutheran church or the Catholic church and you believe in the existence of God, but you don't trust him with your life, you know enough to be able to call out upon his name to be saved. And my hope is that I'll see my father in heaven. Although I don't know that for sure, but I, I have that hope and I'll live in that hope. And, and I think the same thing for your friend that we don't know what was going on inside of her. Maybe when she couldn't express herself, maybe in moments where she was more coherent than others, we just have no idea. But if you don't make things right with you and God, then yes, you will, you will perish. That's what the Bible says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would, have uh, would not perish, but have eternal life. All right. So thank you, JDH, for your question. Again, sorry for your loss. It certainly makes it better when we know that a person has made a commitment to Christ and believes in him. And it's, and it's why we should be talking with our friends and family about whether or not they've really trusted in him and if they understand what true salvation is. Because a lot of times they don't understand exactly what true salvation is. They think they do and they will judge you because of it but um, they, they don't really understand it. And that's why it could be good to say, uh, can I talk to you a little bit about whether or not you've really trusted in Christ, whether you really believe in him? And maybe they'll be a little hostile, but, but you know, if you've got a friendship with them and care about them, then you can, doors can be open for you to be able to share. Um, I like to, when I'm sitting down with someone and we're just having conversations about nothing, I like to ask, start asking questions like, do you believe in an afterlife? Now, they know I'm a pastor, so sometimes they know where I'm going, right? But I just want to try to get the conversation off to something that is significant and means something. Uh, so we have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, the thieves on the cross and Barabbas, were they beaten up the way Jesus was and were they nailed to the cross and not stretched on them, seen different in movies? Um, with both possibilities. Yeah, thanks, Jari. I appreciate your question. Um, yeah, these are things we just don't know. But I think what movies want to do is they want to make Jesus' suffering seem different than the suffering of anyone else. Like he went through greater suffering than anybody has ever gone through. And so they tied the other guys to the cross, but they nailed Jesus to the cross. We know now from archaeology, archaeology has found, I believe it's two different sets of crucified individual remains. One of them had the heel, 
the the nail stuck in the heel bone, and I don't remember the other one, but um, they were nailed to the cross, just as the Bible says. So that's archaeological evidence that they were nailed to a cross. It's also archaeological evidence that they buried people that were crucified sometimes, at least in that case, in the in the, in the case in the scriptures, um, because there was a feast coming, and the it could be granted at certain specific times for the body of the crucified person to be given to the family. In this case, it was a religious leader, Joseph of Arimathea, that had asked for the body of Jesus. Um, but as far as were they were they scourged? Uh, probably they. I think they scourged before they crucified. Um, I think this is just kind of the way that they did it. Um, but there's no way we can know for sure, Jari. But I would say, as far as I know that Barabbas would have been scourged and carried the cross out and been nailed to it just like Jesus was. And that the other two, uh, other two guys that were crucified with Jesus were crucified just like him. The Bible doesn't give us any distinctions. There's no reason for us to have distinctions. So we would end up believing that it was the same if we don't find any, any distinctions that are there. Um, also, the idea that Jesus entered in God, created the world, and he created a world where we interact with, with by the world by, by pain. I pick something up and it's hot and I let go of it because it saved me because of the pain. But that pain can also be used against us in torture or that pain can get out of control, the problem of pain. But God came down and took part in this problem of pain by going through excruciating pain, but with a great purpose. And, and God has a purpose for suffering. He did for the suffering of Jesus, and he does for you and I as well. All right, so um, Long Story has a question. And Long Story says, do you think that Psalms 83 is setting up, setting, setting up in Israel? They are currently surrounded by armies and abandoned by their allies. Yeah, let's go to Psalms 23 and let's talk about this. So, we were just in Israel and the, I'm just going to go to verse 1 and we'll, we'll start there and then we'll make our way down. Oh, just in Israel, while we were there, they were having protests for their government. Um, Bibi Netanyahu was trying through the, the Knesset to be able to overthrow the Supreme Court by 51%. And there's, I think, 120 in the Knesset. And, and so in order to get to the Knesset, then you had to, in order to, to win, to be prime minister, you had to have control of the, of the Knesset, at least 51%. So you basically would render the Supreme Court null and void. Although the Supreme Court had overreached in Israel in places that they shouldn't have, they had begun to create law instead of just making law, there's another way, there should be another way to do it than to taking away the power of the Supreme Court at all. Now, with that happening, the enemies of Israel, I think, saw an opening. They see 600,000 people with a, a population of 6 million Jews in Israel, and they see them in 600,000 in the streets, and now they think well, this is an opportunity for us to take advantage of this. Plus, it's Ramadan, which is a um, uh, uh, a, a Muslim holiday, plus it's it's Passover, plus for Christians it's Easter, and all of them see the Temple Mount as being a place of of special significance to them. I think the Al Aska Mosque. That's not the Dome of the Rock. It's another mosque that's on 
uh, on uh, Mount Moriah, on the Temple Mount, is the third most holy place in Islam. And so they barricaded, they, they do, they would, they, and this is not the first time they've done this. They, they do, they attack people and then they hide in the mosque and they get fireworks and um, they had a lot of fireworks going off while we were there. Couldn't tell if they were gunshots or fireworks when we were up on the Temple Mount making our way uh, down to Hezekiah, uh, excuse me, to, to the Pool of Siloam, down through Hezekiah's tunnel to the Pool of Siloam. Um, uh, we couldn't tell exactly what they were, but there was some things that were heating up and you could tell. And um, then when we got back, then we saw that the the Israeli Defense Force has gone in to the Alaska Mosque a couple of times to clear it out and to arrest terrorists. There's also been terror attacks where people have been killed. There are rockets that have been shot in from Hamas in Lebanon and in the Gaza Strip. And um, we don't know how much Hezbollah is involved in this. We now have Hezbollah, Hamas that has, has spread up into the area up in Lebanon and they're shooting rockets in, and the Israeli Iron Dome has been doing a good job. But, hey, we're seeing all this happen. And if there was an all-out war, if Iran, who has threatened to wipe out Israel, comes at Iran with all of their force, Israel may be able to stand against them. But if you put Russia in with that, and Libya and a few other countries, all of a sudden you might see some problems, and we could see um, the end of the world coming about. All right, so with that background of what's taking place in Israel right now, okay, right now there's unrest between the Palestinians and Israel. There's always, an, when there's peace, there's an uneasy peace. And right now um, there is, there are skirmishes that are taking place. Not all out war by any means. It's not civil war. You know, you see clickbait all over the internet, right? And so Israel's the civil war. And, but the Bible does say that God is going to make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to the entire world. And I think it's the Temple Mount that's going to, going to cause it. When we go up on the Temple Mount, we stand on bedrock under the Dome of the Spirit. And, um, I, me, and me and my wife did that this time. That's the piece of property that's going to cause the, the end of the world. Now we're at Psalms 83, and this is Long Story's question, whether um, if I think Psalms 83 war is setting up Israel. So let's go ahead and read this. So let me put it up on the screen for you. And this is a Psalm of, um, of Asaph. Uh, and let me go ahead and do that. All right, there we go. Uh, do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold peace. Do not be still, O God, for behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their heads. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against the sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation. The name of Israel may be remembered no more, for they have consulted together with one con consent. They form a uh, confederacy against you, the tenants of Edom, which would be Jordan today, and the Ishmaelites, which would be the Arab peoples, Moab, which is Jordan as well, the Hagarites, um, which I would take it would come from Hagar, Gabel, Ammon, and Amalek, Philistia, with the inhabitants of Tyre, which is up in the region of Lebanon, and joined with them, and they helped the children of Lot, Selah. Deal with them as with Midian and with uh, Sesera, with Jabin and with the brook Kiddush, uh, which perished in Endor. And so we could go back and we could talk about these skirmishes that, that taken in. But he's just basically saying, you protected Israel in the past, protect them again in the future. 
um, who becomes refuge on the earth, make the nobles like the ones of Zeb. Yes, the princes like Zeba and Zulma, who said, let us take this for ourselves. Let me see how much more we've got here. All right, so we, we, we already been talking about, let's just go to the end here, um, that they may know um, who's, uh, they may know that you, whose name alone is Lord, are the most high over all of the earth. So God is going to use these skirmishes to bring them to the place where they believe that these skirmishes, all at war of, of Psalm 83, to prove that God is God and that Israel is going to remain. So Israel, there will be the, the Gog and Magog war, and this seems to be talking about the same thing in Psalms 80, 83. It will be over the, the Temple Mount. If it doesn't happen now, one day that, that scenario will come about. And I do believe it could be the Temple Mount, it could be Jerusalem that caused them to do this. Um, the Jordan, excuse me, um, right now, uh, Iran is the big enemy backed by Russia for Israel. They've got a base in Syria, and we have, uh, Israel has been striking those bases uh, that are in Syria. And um, I, I think if it comes down to Iran and Israel, Israel has a much larger base, a much larger military, um, at least weapons-wise, than what Iran does. Uh, but there's going to be other countries that are going to join them and come up against them. And we read about that in Psalm 83. So yes, this could be, long story, this could be the catalyst to all of these things starting. And God said that, and, and think about this, Israel wasn't even a nation before 1948. And then in the last days, God's going to raise up the nation of Israel and they're going to be in, uh, some, uh, uh, a cup of trembling to all the nations of the world. And that's all come to pass since 1948. Before that, it wasn't a nation. So we have prophecies that have been fulfilled in basically in our lifetime, Israel becoming part of, uh, Jerusalem becoming part of Israel in 1967. Um, that wouldn't, the stage would not be set today if it weren't for those things happening. But the stage is set. And I think that's really, really important to us. All right. So thank you for your question there. I, uh, I appreciate that. We have another question from Susan. Susan says, regarding Psalm 139.21, how are we to balance love these people with hating God's enemies with him? All right, let's go take a look at that. Psalms 139.21. Let's see if that's where we want to start. Yeah, it looks like it. Okay, let's go ahead and start uh, in 21. All right. Thank you, Susan. I appreciate uh, your question. All right. So let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you. This is Psalm 21 asking how we balance, um, how are we to balance loving these people uh, with God hating enemies with them? All right. So this is Psalm 20, um, Psalms. 139.21, do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. Um, I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my ways, my anxieties, to see if there's any wickedness in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And that's the end of the psalm. So 
how do we see that God says, love your enemies, and God talking about hating those who are here? Let's do this. Let's go to Let's go to my Strong's Concordance here. Let me pull this up, if I can find it on this phone. There we go. Strong's, and then let me go to, I'm going to go here. Um, let me go to Psalms 139. A little bit of a clunky way to find these, but it works. One, what's 139.21, right? 139 and then 21. All right, let me put this up on the screen for you again, and let's just take a look here and see if we can learn anything from the, the Hebrew. Um, do I not hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? So verse 21, so I'm going to go into the word hate. Do I not hate? Well, that didn't work. Hold on. i got to find it all again. Hold on, let me come back out here. We'll try this one more time. And if it does, if it's not working, it's not working, but let's try it. It should work. I don't know what that was all about. Psalms 139, 21. Again, a little clunky way to find it, but it works. All right, let me pull them back up on the screen here. I'm going to try this again. Um, do I not hate? Ah, all right. Well, then I'm not going to be able to. I'm not going to be able to do that. Um, so what I wanted to do was to look at the word for hate. Um, it's connected to the word enemy. And I wanted, to, I wanted to make sure that this word here was the same as when God says, I hate all those who do iniquity. They've become my enemies, how you could say that as well. And here in this, it also talks about God's enemies with him at the end there. Remember, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, he died on the cross. God loves everyone. And when they become their enemy is when he turns against them and he talks about hating them and it's always a connection with being his enemies. So how do we balance loving people um, with, with hating God's enemies with him? Uh, so this is like imprecatory psalms. David prayed, bust their teeth in their mouth. Um, he prayed for people to be hurt. We don't pray for our enemies that way today. We pray that God would bless them we want to see them get saved. Uh, there, there was something different about those Old Testament times and those prayers. Were those prayers okay for David to pray? Well, I, I don't know, maybe, but they're not okay for us to pray because we're supposed to love our enemies. And where David says, I, I hate them with a perfect hatred, I hate them as you hate them, um, then we aren't to do that. We're, we're to love them and to bless them, to bless those who curse us because that's the direction that we've been given by Christ. They weren't given the same direction as far as I know, and so they did this. Um, is there love their enemies? Jesus took it further to love your enemy. To, yeah, I mean, love, love your neighbors is in Leviticus, but Jesus took it further to love your enemies. And so your question, how are we to balance? I would say we don't balance this at all. We go to the New Testament. Um, the, the psalmist said, and if I go back to the psalm, uh, 21. Let's read this again here where it says, Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Or do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Now, I would need to do a lot of research on this to figure out, is there a place where God says to hate those who hate him? Or is this just something that the psalmist is doing? Is this, is this we're just being told the psalmist does it, 
But by being told that the psalmist does it, doesn't mean, because this is how the psalmist wrote this, doesn't mean that there's an approval of it. In other words, in the Old Testament, we see people doing a lot of things. And just because they do them doesn't mean God approves of them. That doesn't mean God told them to do it. So there's descriptive and prescriptive is the way that you would put it. Descriptive is describing something. Prescriptive is a command. So I would want to know, is this prescriptive? Here we have something descriptive. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Um, That's descriptive. But we know the command that we're supposed to be given. So even though that can be for future research to be able to figure things out, we know we're supposed to love our enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who persecute you. Uh, We know that's how we are supposed to live today. So Susan, there is no balancing. Um, Those that hate God, we love them, we pray for them, um, we, we, we know that they are enemies, and we continue to pray for them and love them. We do know that God will bring justice one day, and we see in the book of Revelation, the souls martyred under the altar wanting justice and God telling them to hang on and he's going to bring vengeance and God will bring vengeance to them. So we do know that will happen. Um, But right now we're told to love our enemies. And as far as I can tell, there's nothing that would make me think that we're supposed to any way, shape or form try to do exactly what, what the psalmist did here which was um, Asaph, right? That's what we found in the beginning. Was it true? No, it's Psalm of David. (laughs) So it's David praying that, which is funny. All right, okay. So hopefully that's helpful, Susan. I don't know how helpful it is, um, but hopefully that's helpful. We have a follow-up from Psychman. Psychman says, um, he hardened Pharaoh's heart because God gives people what they want. Romans 1, 24 through 26. Uh, and I would say I would agree with that. Um, God's not going to, if somebody doesn't want to go, if somebody doesn't love God and doesn't want to go to heaven, why would God send them to heaven? So God, oftentimes, oftentimes the sin you're seeking has, and you seek it, has the punishment within the sin that you're seeking because God gives them over to it which I'm pretty sure is the reference that Psychman is making here um, out of the book of Romans. But let me pull it up just to make sure. Romans 1, 24. Yeah, God gave them up. Let me go ahead and put this up here for you. Um, Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness and lust of their heart, which is what they wanted, and to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie, to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. All right, and then um, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women, exchanged their natural use for what uh, is against nature. So God gave them over to these very things uh, that they wanted, and and uh, along with that comes the, the judgment that's involved in it. I've often said God, sin is sin because it has inherently something wrong and destructive in it. Sin's deceptive, destructive, it brings death. And so God wants us to get sin out of our lives because of those things. And when I find myself delighting in the Lord and walking in the Spirit and not seeking after sinful things, then I I save myself from the destruction, the death, the deception that comes from sin. Um, So um, Kay asked the question, does... um, 
though the Bible doesn't say how long fallen angels, how long angels fell before the earth was created. I wish it did, but it doesn't. So, yeah, I see. I, I don't, didn't need to answer it, but I did. Anyway, okay. All right. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, um, here um, we have a follow-up with Empress Kimberly. Um, if you can become an enemy of God, uh, does God hate his enemies? And this is Psalms 5.5. 5. I'm going to try to bring this up again, and I'm going to try to do it just here. I won't put it up on the screen. Um, Psalms 5.5. 5. So, we can look at what this word is and see if we can figure it out in the Greek. Psalms 5. Um, five, the foolish shall not stand in his sight. Uh, thou hatest the workers who do iniquity. And the word is hatest. I have no idea why. It's just, it just kicks me out when I go to it. You know, let me try something here. And I'm going to re, I'm, I'm going to reset things here. I don't ever turn this particular phone off. Um, I, if it doesn't work here, let me, I'm going to, I'm going to do this one way or another. By golly. Um, so, I'm going to go to Psalms 5.5, 5, 5, 5 um, thou hatest, looks like, well, all right, I'm going to do it on my own phone, and I'll read you what it says here, might even be able to hold it up and see, can you read it, if I hold it up, I don't know if you can or not, probably not. All right, um, so let me go on and to my phone, which is different than the one I'm trying to bring it up on. Let me go to Psalms 5.5. Five. Psalms 5. Hatest. Yep, so it works on my phone now. I need to turn this one off and restart it, which I'm going to just do while we're talking about it. Sometimes you just need to reset your phones, right? Because they've got some glitch in it. Um, so it's the, it's the prime root. Um, it's the a primitive root to hate, uh, personally, an enemy or a foe. Instead so, 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 of being an enemy of God, and being an enemy of God, then God comes after them. And, oh, no. Did I just ruin? I take it you guys can still hear me, but I can't see you. So we've got uh, what, just a couple of minutes left. So everything's frozen here on my end. Um, I'm going to assume it's not frozen on your end. If it is, I'm sorry. I'm just going to go ahead and finish this out. So um, yeah, Kimberly, follow up. Um, if you can become an enemy of God, does God hate his enemies? So you become an enemy of God and, and God's going to treat you like an enemy. And this word does mean to become an enemy. All right. Um, Let's see. Um, so, yeah, we're just a couple minutes away. Let me go ahead and take this last question from Kay. I'll get the um, roll of these questions here a little bit later on, and we'll get them to you. If this is frozen, sorry. You just stare at the frozenness there. Uh, Kay says, is this to Revelation 1.18? I am he who lives and who was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys uh, to death and Hades. Um, yeah, this is an interesting statement uh, here in Revelation 1.18. Um, Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against you, and said, I give you the keys to the kingdom. And that was said in Caesarea Philippi, where they believed the gates of Hades were, 
And now he says, I have the keys to death and Hades. So not only does Jesus let people into heaven, but he lets people into death and Hades as well. And um, which is just a scary thought when you get to the book of Revelation. All right. So it's been good to see you guys. Good to spend uh, this time with you. Um, hope things are still working fine. Uh, and uh, we have a teaching tonight out of Revelation chapter 10. It's a parenthetical passage. We're making our way through the seal judgment and events and the trumpet judgment and events. Sometimes they're judgments, sometimes they're events. And then every once in a while we get a parenthesis or a window or a flashback that God gives us some further information so we can have clarity as we go forward. And we're going to start one of those parathetical uh, passages between Revelation chapter 10 and Revelation chapter 11, verses, I think, 15, where the seventh trumpet sounds. So you have the sixth trumpet, and then the seventh trumpet, and there's a window in between them. We're going to be talking about the thunder sounding and the mighty angel and the little book that he receives. Those are all in our Bible studies tonight. All right. So God bless you guys. Uh, have a great week. Stay close to Jesus. Walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. All right. God bless you. Love you. We will see you later on.